Are you looking for ways to attract and retain private pay clients? Thryzer is a payment platform for therapists built to help clients automatically tap into their out-of-network benefits and save on therapy up front. Check out our special link, join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist, and use the code modern therapists to activate $2,500 in free payments with Thryzer. Therapy notes, the number one trusted EHR among mental health professionals just keeps getting better and better. With legendary customer support 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they're giving you all the tools you need to succeed, whether you're a solo clinician or a group practice. Try them free for two months using promo code MODERN today. You're listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide, where therapists live, breathe, and practice as human beings. To support you as a whole person and a therapist, here are your hosts, Kurt Widhelm and Katie Vernoy. Welcome back, Modern Therapists. This is the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. I'm Kurt Widhelm with Katie Vernoy. And towards the end of last year, we dedicated an episode to the wonderful training program at Drexel University and really talked about the development of person of the therapist as a model of training. You all really loved that. That was one of our highest downloaded episodes ever. And one of the people that we talked about as far as being really foundational to those ideas is Dr. Harry Aponte. He is gracious enough to join us as a guest today and talk a little bit about his process and going into that. We're also featuring Dr. Aponte as a keynote speaker at our Therapy Reimagined 2020 conference. And for the latest updates on how that is going to play out and what's going to happen, check out our website at mtsgpodcast.com. But we are so thankful and so excited to have Dr. Aponte join us today. So thank you for joining us, Harry. Glad to be here. We are so excited to have you. There is a lot that we want to talk to you about, but we ask all of our guests, who are you and what are you putting out into the world? <laughs> well, I, at a personal level, I'm a New York Puerto Rican. Parents came from Puerto Rico. I was born and raised in New York, Harlem and South Bronx. Came from a, I'm an only child, came from a very troubled family, Catholic. Spent a good part of my life trying to figure out how I fit in this world because it didn't just come comfortably. Mm. Um, differences in uh, being an ethnic and racial minority and having essentially grown up in the, in the ghetto and then getting into the professional world. Well, I guess what says it all is to me is that after I graduated from social work school at Fordham, I went for postgraduate training at the Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas. And that's the first time I actually met and had conversation with white Anglo-Saxon people. So that's, <laughs> uh, you know, white people to me were the Irish kids and the Italian kids and their gangs. You know, so it was, we were all ghettoized within the ghetto. Mm -hmm. uh, that was my world. Uh, all of that uh, was then, when I got into the professional world, it was, it also was complicated because I, going to the Menninger Clinic, it was a, a uh, psychoanalytic environment. Very classical psychoanalytic. Uh, the first hospital that 
try to put into practice Freud's uh, principles into a um, in-hospital environment. Uh, Murray Bowen came from there. Nathan Ackerman was trained there. So we had a few of our predecessors and founders of family therapy and systemic thinking coming out of uh, the Menninger Clinic, you know. And so there we came from an environment where you learned Freud's idea of, well, he actually used the words that, that the posture of the, of the therapist should be that of a uh, surgeon mm. uh, and, and not personally involved in, with your clients. And at the same time, though, his theory and technique was based on something that to me felt very personal, which had to do with transference and counter-transference. Yeah. Yeah. So I was there for eight years. And then Sal Mnuchin had moved from New York to Philadelphia. And he invited me to come work in Philadelphia. And I, I think Part of what the reason why he invited me was because I'm Puerto Rican, and uh, the clinic, the child guidance clinic in Philadelphia, was situated in a black neighborhood, mm. and, I, and I had grown up actually not in Spanish Harlem, even though I was born there. I was, grew up in Black Harlem, uh, the only Latin family in that environment. So it was a very comfortable and welcoming environment to me. Uh, and I, I assume that that's why, one of the reasons why he invited me to come work with him in Philly. He had only been there a few years and, and really experimenting with working the structural approach in really in, in the neighborhood, completely in the neighborhood where our clients came from. We contrasted, even though Sal was very focused on technique, um, but it also contrasted with um, what we were getting from. I, I remember uh, Virginia Satir and Don Jackson came to uh, Menninger's and, and spoke with us. And she came with California thinking, you know. Mm, the the, the crazy California <laughs> thinking. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, but, it, you know, because she came from a place where she used the words like intimacy when she spoke about the relationship between the uh, therapist and the client, which was quite unlike the concept of being a surgeon with a sure. you know, anesthetized patient. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I had to deal with that. What I'm saying is that all of my personal background and as well as the, the professional exposure that I had, all it did was to make me reflect and reflect and reflect and think deeply about what about me in this world and what about mm -hmm. me when I'm sitting down with these people who are very strange to me and I have trouble communicating with and I have to somehow empathize with them and understand them and they have to understand me and believe me that I'm really there yeah. for them and all of that so that so that the whole business of forming a, uh, a relationship was demanded of me some serious thinking, you know. And then the contrast when I was with, came into Philadelphia and was working with the uh, African-American population there where I felt immediately comfortable and related without any, um, it was no barrier that I experienced. Mm -hmm which was so different when I used to do workshops, when we used to do live family sessions, 
And I remember in those days, people were inviting me to talk about structural family therapy. And what they would do at the workshops most often was to bring their most difficult, you know, <laughs> low, <laughs> low, low income, you know, underorganized uh, families for me to see. And what always stuck in my mind, uh, just was imprinted, was the, the times when, when I heard them say, well, these people don't talk. So mm. well, my reaction was, well, Maybe they don't talk to you, but they certainly talk to each other, <laughs> you know? So, so that both in my personal life and in my professional life, there were bridges to cross and barriers to overcome. And that made me very self-aware. I didn't take the relationship for granted. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I was very conscious of the relationship and I was very conscious of the of the challenges that the relationship involved. And, and I could see the differences in the work that I did from the work that I saw others who didn't have my background do with the same families that I was working with. Uh, it rather naturally came to me to be sensitive to my, myself and who I am and what I bring to the experience of uh, being with clients, whether they were clients who were foreign to me in terms of their ethnicity, in terms of their race, in -hmm. terms of their cultural backgrounds, as well as being with people who, to me, felt more in sync with what I knew from my growing up, you know. So the work of thinking about the self of the therapist came quite naturally to me. In fact, I I just couldn't avoid it. And so I It sounds like it. Yeah. So I had to give it a lot of thought. And I just uh, incorporated it into my work, the work that I was doing. In fact, when <laughs> I was, I think I was at the child guidance clinic, I don't know, 11 years or whatever it was, quite a mm-hmm. while. But I couldn't talk there about the person of the therapist. Uh, Sal was interested <laughs> in technique. Uh, uh, and I used to then talk about uh, the self of the therapist when I used to do workshops and in my writing. Uh, But that was outside the clinic, which was really Uh. very strange. Thryzer is a payment platform designed for out-of-network therapy. As a therapist, you would use Thryzer to charge clients for sessions and collect your full rate up front. From the client's perspective, Thryzer links to their health plan, so insurance claims are automatically submitted for them upon every charge. From there, Thryzer manages the claims end-to-end so that your clients don't have to worry about manually submitting super bills or getting on calls with insurance. The best part? Thryzer allows clients to only pay their co-insurance portion for sessions, while Thryzer covers the rest of your fee and waits for reimbursement on their behalf. They also offer you an instant benefits calculator for free, allowing you to provide upfront transparency to prospective clients on their out-of-network coverage. Therapists only pay a standard 3% credit card processing fee per session with no additional fees. Visit join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist to get started and use our promo code modern therapists to receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. How was that particular piece accepted? Because for our listeners who aren't familiar with Harry's career. And I'm really glad that you've kind of shared the story so far because there was a hot minute there where 
eco-structural therapy was what you were writing about, but I'm imagining Sal coming to you and saying, Harry, that's fine. Do that outside of the clinic here, but don't, <laughs> don't cross the streams here. Well, well, he didn't, he didn't, he never said that to me. He just ignored it, <laughs> you know, but uh, you know, the story I tell was that when I first got there early on, he put me in charge of the clinical services and he, he focused on the training and he was training people from the community actually mm. to be uh, lay people to become uh, therapists, which was a great concept. But he asked me to, to handle the clinical work, but there was trouble in the community. This was in, this was in the late sixties, early seventies and people in the community had, organized and they wanted to be sort of a, an advisory board to the clinic, but an advisory board that would tell us how we should work. And he, with some of the uh, higher administrative people, were meeting with, with that group and I'd, it wasn't going very well. So then he invited me to figure, well, okay, this guy maybe can better communicate with these people from the community. And well, we sat down one day, and but the first time I joined the meeting, and so there were like, you know, I don't know, 15 or so people from the community there, and four or five of the administrators from the child guidance clinic. And it was a back and forth, and I was just keeping quiet, wasn't I? Didn't really know a whole lot about what was going on. And then, um, community people said, Well, you know, we need to council among ourselves so uh you white people get out because uh, we need to <laughs> so i sat there and i thought for a minute i th i don't think he meant what he said i don't think he mm -hmm. realized what he just said so i sat <laughs> 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 and uh sal got up with the other administrators and they looked at me why wasn't i going out with them and i didn't say a word i what was i going to say to them you know and so they walked out they weren't too happy with me you know it was like tanto had left you know the lone ranger and the went to talk with the indians uh, who were coming to attack uh the group there yeah, they they were uncomfortable with me they didn't address me they I, mm. I was just sitting there you know like this sore thumb and then finally say oh well you know excuse us well, we don't want to insult you but <laughs> you know <laughs> this is a community group and you know it's, i said yeah yeah I, I understand what you're saying but you, know, you were talking about white people you know and i don't consider myself a white person and i have as much african background as, as some of you do so if you really wanted you know the people from the clinic to leave, you should have said that, but that's not what you said. Mm. Um, so, well, I, they left me there and, uh, <laughs> and they didn't throw me out. And so after that, I was, I was, I started to meet with them myself, you know, mm. Sal did not come and meet with them. And, and then they got pretty aggressive about they were going to run the clinic basically is that that's how I heard it. And, and I said, no, you're not. I said, you know, if that's what you intend to do, that's the end of our meetings. I had no problem speaking up. I felt perfectly comfortable in mm -hmm. calling them on that. And uh, I said, I'd be happy to have you involved and hear from you, but I'm not going to have you try to even attempt to try to run the clinic. And so that was the end of the meetings. And then I went out into the community and I started to ask, who runs this community? Mm. Where's the leadership from the community? 
And to make a very long story short, I found out it was a guy named Jim Lester who was a um, so a so-called activist at that time, a mm-hmm. African American activist and a very scary guy who um, had confrontations with Frank Rizzo, the mayor of Philadelphia. Oh wow! Um, and he and the cops were not in very good standing. But I think everybody was afraid of of Jim. But it was also a, a, he oversaw the South Philly and. And the gangs were pretty much under his control there. He kept them from fighting with each other and killing each other. They were there, but Mm -hmm. um, there was a a certain discipline that he imposed on that part of the community. And uh, and one day, uh, the clinic had given me freedom to meet with him, and they supported it. So he and I would meet in the bars and have a drink. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I said, hey, Jim, you know, you're very good with the kids. We're very good with families. Why don't we work together? And wow. uh, he liked the idea. And, I, and so we talked about it and we said, well, why don't we get a hold of the kids who are not going, who are truants, mm. who are not going to class? And he said, well, you know, how do we even find out who they are? And how do we get access to them? I said, well, that's the advantage that I have of being at the Child Guidance Clinic, because okay? I know the superintendent of schools in this district. And you and I can go meet with him. And so we met with the guy and told them what we had in mind, that we had in mind setting up a school, an alternative school, for the kids who were not attending class. And he said, well, if you can get them to attend class, who don't ever attend class in the public schools, good luck to you. But it has to be (laughs) after 3 o'clock. You can't compete with us. Uh. Okay. Jim put pressure on one of the radio stations and it's also a tv station to let us do a um, telethon and we did a telethon raised money bought a building oh my goodness and uh, jim went over to the university of penn to their school of education and got the black students there who were learning to be teachers and got them to volunteer and use this as a practicum for themselves oh my goodness Uh, so (laughs) so we had a school you know and then we all contacted the families. We had a list of all the kids who weren't attending class. And, and we contacted the families, told them what we were doing. And Jim set up a school, trying to make something that was very long and complicated, very simple. <laughs> um, but it was set up. And we had classes going. And think about this. I mean, we're talking about kids who were not going to school at all. Well, Jim said to them, to the kids, Class begins at 3.30, and if you're not here by 3.30, we lock the doors. Well, <laughs> so wow. I went down, and I would observe from a hiding place to see what would happen <laughs> at 3.30, <laughs> and kids were running to get to oh, class, wow. wanting wow. to get into the school. And we tested those kids, and in a few months, they just jumped grades. I mean, they were doing oh, wow. wonderfully in the schools. Uh, it was a whole new experience for them. They loved it. and They were very disciplined. And if the teachers weren't disciplined, he threw them out. And we oh got my people goodness. who were disciplined, who came from Penn, who were disciplined and knew how to behave properly and be respectful of the kids. And then when I became the director of the clinic of child guidance, and Sal was still doing the training piece of it, I then incorporated that portion of the schooling into the clinic itself. 
Oh, well. We had it going in the clinic and the parents came into the clinic and the parents invited other parents to come in. And so the whole eco-structural thing came out of that. So that while Sal was focusing on the families, I was focusing on the families with community, with the environment, knowing, at least convinced that, and knowing in my heart that uh, if we were going to make a difference in their lives, we also had to make a difference in the community. So I had city council, I had representatives from the state coming in, African-American city councilmen and representatives come in, get to know the clinic, give us access to the licensing and inspection people, to the police, to all, all the city resources so that if the therapists needed connections to get resources for the families, they were there and they knew us. And we had people to contact there. We could make a phone call and actually get through. And somebody could actually listen to us. (laughs) Uh, I I just imagine, like, this is amazing. And and this is so wonderful that you were able to identify this need and create such a huge impact in this community. I'm just thinking about if you had remained a surgeon with an anesthetized patient, like, none of this would have happened. And I, you know, you talk about like that, that modality of thinking about things as well as Sal's, like, let's focus on the intervention. When I think about what you were doing in the background there, why do you think so many people were ignoring themselves in the situation and how they could connect on a human to human level and actually make a difference? Because it seems like you had such a strong experience of bringing yourself and having yourself be important in this role and it was so different from what everybody else was talking about or were even willing to look at. I mean, Sal ignored it. <laughs> Why do you think that was the case? Well, you know, it wasn't like Sal ignored it. I think he was aware of it. But, you know, I mean, he came from Argentina. You know, he's, he, he has his roots in Israel and in Argentina. That's a mm-hmm. certain environment. And Virginia Satir, where does she come from? Marie Bowen, where did he come from? Mm-hmm. Okay. So these are all great people and you know ours walled you know they were they were interested in the community uh mm-hmm. sal clearly was interested in the community you know that's mm-hmm. the families of the slums that that's yeah. the, that was his first book so it's not that they ignored it but i grew up in it mm. okay i lived it okay so i also knew firsthand what it was like to not have the resources readily available Okay, yeah. not to be able to make contact with people who had any kind of influence. Okay, so it's one thing to go into a therapist's office or even have a therapist come to your home. Okay, yeah. but it's, it's another thing to then be out in the community and have all these resources out there and they were out of reach. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you were treated differently. Yeah, you know, in, in, in these places. So this was, this was in me. This was part of who I was. You know, it, it came naturally to me in a way that it would not have come naturally to these people who had the concept. Uh, mm. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. think about it. I mean, Sal, Sal did Families of the Slums. Sal, you know, did his work. He, he took the Wiltwick School and he brought it into, into the community itself, in effect. And Arswell was working with the, with the community. So, so these people were not insensitive to this. Uh, but they also didn't have a certain natural instinct that comes from actually growing up in it and yeah. living with it and the frustration of it. 
Okay. It, it added a whole other dimension mm -hmm. uh, to it. And by the way, if, if you read, uh, I think it was in the, it was called the Family Therapy Networker at the time. And, and Sal did an, uh, an article there a, a year or two before he died. And, and in that article, he talked about how it wasn't technique that made the difference. It was the therapist. Mm. And the, the personality. <laughs> Vindication. <laughs> it, it was there. I want to use this as kind of a jumping off point because you've so colorfully illustrated the impact that you had, not just with the clients that you're working with, but also the broader systems within the community and the interventions that you've led there. So many of the training programs for therapists now don't even teach the concept of having that kind of of influence. They they see it as outside the scope of the therapist. They see that as outside the role of the positions that we're in. But this is where it seems like the way that we're training therapists now and the way that therapists learn what really works and what's actually impactful for clients seem to be really two separate worlds. Mm-hmm. And you've, you know, bridged that with your work at Drexel. You really started popularizing the person of the therapist training there right around the time that every other program was going the other direction back into it's just about techniques. Right. Can you talk <laughs> about how you've continued to stand on your own and do it successfully in this way that really does add this robust good therapeutic training model that can continue to serve clients, not just at the individual or the family level, but within the, the bigger systems. This is who I am. Okay. And this is how I think. Mm -hmm. And whether anybody listened to me or not, I didn't know any other way to do it except the way that made sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> I <Okay>. like it. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I went through my training and I, the schooling and all this and that. My parents still, you know, lived in South Bronx. And I had to go through the, the, the painful years even then of when they were ill, when trying to get them services at Lincoln Hospital in New York, services for their, for their eyes and for, their, for all their physical ailments and, and how difficult it was for them to get the resources that they needed. And they were still there. And I was in Philadelphia. And my frustration in reaching out to the community to try to mobilize these things and make them accessible to my parents and how difficult it was. So I was living this in those years. I mean, I still remember uh, my father was, was dying. And, and um, he said he was dying. He told me he was dying. And he went to Lincoln Hospital. And they looked at him there. And, and they said, oh, you know, you're not sick enough to stay in the hospital. And he says to me, Harry, I'm, you know, I'm dying. And he calls me and I, I'm, and I was about to go do a workshop in, uh, in Ann Arbor. And I said, you know, I, I can't leave you telling me this. I'm in Philadelphia. I'm supposed to go to Ann Arbor. And mm -hmm. you're telling me you're dying and the hospital discharges you saying you're not sick enough. To me, they just didn't understand. So I called Lincoln Hospital. And I uh, had the chutzpah to call and said, I want to I talk to the person in charge of the hospital. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and strangely enough, they put me to the guy and I got the guy on the phone immediately. <laughs> I, I don't know how that happened. That was an act of God. You know? <laughs> and I, I said to him, listen, I'm, 
I'm about to do some training of people in, in Ann Arbor. My father tells me he's sick and he's dying. I can't leave my father in this state. And he look, he sounds to me uh, like he's in a he's in really in bad straits. And the guy said, uh, all right. He says, I'll I'll make sure that have him come back. I'll make sure that he gets hospitalized. You can go ahead. I said, I'm not going anywhere until he's in the hospital and you call me and tell me that he's in the hospital. Mm-hmm. He said, all right, you know. So later on that day, you know, my father went. They admitted him. I got the call. I went to Ann Arbor. That night, my wife called me. Oh, your father died. Mm. But he was in a hospital. And they were yeah. attending to him. And they listened. But my God, you know, having to go through all that trouble to make it happen. You know, how many uh, people there had a son who would be able to call and get the person who, who could make a decision, you know, and, and make things happen. Uh, so, you know, this is in my blood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm taking away from this that when we enter into this profession, when we've had to bring our own experiences into every single situation, whether it's something that is for the greater change of the people that we work with, or whether it's deeply impactful to us as individuals, that we can't ignore both. That we can't, one does not exist without the other. And this is, you know, really where we've been big fans of Harry and his work for a, a very long time and have had a couple of conversations with him leading up to this podcast and have really enjoyed the, the wit and kind of the, the pathway that he's blazed through a lot of his career. Because as we mentioned in the, the previous episode on how to be a therapist of we love when people have done the research for us and provided the body of work (laughs) of the things that we encourage. And I'm so proud that we get to share this space with Harry because this is a, a lifetime, an example of a lifetime of standing up for what you believe in, knowing that what works is not just the techniques that you read out of a book that as much as the influences around therapy seem to make it come faster, come cheaper, get people out the door, that there's a very deep personal impact in this. And that's not independent of the life that we have in our own lives. And sometimes we end up with really, really tough personal situations that impact that. And that's part of the human factor of being a therapist. Not only does Therapy Notes combine billing, scheduling, notes, secure messaging, group telehealth, and more into one streamlined platform, they're also always adding new features and forms to their library. So no matter your specialty, Therapy Notes has you covered. Learn more at therapynotes.com and use promo code MODERN for two months free. I think to, to add to that, Curtis, I'm just so struck with your story, Harry, about 
how your personal life experiences made it impossible for you to see it any other way to do anything different. Yeah. And to me, it just really highlights the privilege that had designed therapy before, believing that somehow we didn't need to exist in the room or we didn't we weren't relevant to the room and not recognizing the full needs of the clients before us to have people who truly understand and are able to not just do an intervention, but to advocate and inform and to design systems that actually will make a difference. And and to me, being a waspy white woman, <laughs> you know, I I I'm always struck when I'm able to more fully recognize how privileged I am and what I would not have thought to bring into the room. And I think that's why, you know, even in this idea that we could be blank screens or surgeons or any of these things, like it, it just feels so, I don't know what the right word is, just ridiculous. Maybe I'll just go with ridiculous. Like it feels so ridiculous that we could actually not have a personal relationship or not bring any of ourselves into the room and granted, Freud nodded to it with countertransference, right? And and there are systems and there are all those things. But but to me, I'm just so struck with how you naturally and organically were able to identify the differences with how you were interacting with the clients or the community members around the clinic when the therapists or the counselors or the folks who were creating these things did not recognize what that barrier was to connecting. They just didn't talk or they just didn't understand. It was it was something where the notion of looking into yourself and your experience was obvious to you, but completely not to folks who were so privileged to not have to understand it in the same way. I don't know if I'm making sense, but but to me I just I really appreciate that. And I I'm curious because I think you're very humble and saying, well, this is just how I think this is just how I, I didn't, couldn't do it any other way. And I believe that that's true, but I also believe that many people wouldn't be able to put that together into something like the person of the therapist training. And so I'm going to steal one of Kurt's questions because I think it's so relevant, which is how do you think clinical education for therapists, social workers, psychologists, how do you think it should change? Because I think if Kurt and I had our way, person of the therapist training would be required. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So looking at not everyone's necessarily going to adopt the whole program, what do you think at the minimum do clinical programs need to do before therapists really can enter into this work effectively? You know, I'll tell another story. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) we love um, your stories yeah well i think they illustrate better than i can conceptualize some of this myself Uh, i had been invited to do some teaching at as an adjunct uh, at drexel uh, on structural family therapy and then there was a change of leadership there the woman named marlene watson was became in charge of the couples and family therapy program She's African-American. She had seen some of my work and she was interested in what we're talking about, uh, given where she was coming from. Uh, she's very interested in social justice. And so I said, well, this is, this is what I'm doing. I was doing my 
training on my own, uh, mm-hmm. training people on the, on the use of self and with this perspective. And she said, can you bring it into, into our clinic? And I said, well, I, I think I can, but with one condition that she said, what's that? I said, I think your faculty needs to be exposed to it first and they yeah. have to be into it because I don't want to be, you know, another little class that's being taught on the side here uh, <laughs> yeah. among 10 others. Because I think this is this is very much to the core of what's necessary for the development of a therapist. I don't think this is just something that we add on, you know. And she said, "All right, we'll do it." I mean, that was that quick. And I said, "Well, can you get them together?" She said, "Sure." And she said, "And I'll be the first one to present." And nice. So she was the first one to present. She presented her work and exposed herself and some of her own issues in, uh, in, in supervising. That's what she uh, offered for, for me to work on with her. And I did it with all the faculty that was there, the, the five or six core faculty that was there. And, and, uh, and she said, we're going to make this, you know, a cornerstone of, of our training program. So she made a full commitment that's it. so good. Okay, and, and gave me everything that I asked for. You know, I, I said I, I don't I don't want to do this by myself. I can't. I like I want to I want a, a co leader. Uh, I'd like to have a woman. Uh, I said I have my perspective, but women have their own perspective, and I'd like to just expand our perspectives on this. And so that's what she arranged for. So we designed the program. The program was also labor intensive which is one of the reasons we can talk about this a little later, but, you know, why I don't think it's the program is being used in too many places. Okay? Although people are hearing about it in many places, you know, including Africa, Asia, and so on, getting correspondence all the time about this program in, in, in other continents. But it is labor-intensive. And so I, I designed a program that had uh, three basic components to it. First component was that you, as a therapist uh, who want to be a therapist, uh, you need to know yourself. And in particular, a wrinkle that I added, which is not too common in the field, which is you also need to know and, and be able to speak to your own hangups. Yeah. Uh, I'm painfully conscious of my hangups. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, and I always was, and I still am, and I know how difficult it is to change, and I know what kind of problems it creates for my relationships, and I know how, how things that I have to overcome in order to do some decent clinical work. But I also know that for me to be able to not just hear people and observe them, but also to feel them, I have to be in touch with my own experience of life, with my own struggles of life, okay? And when I do my clinical work, I do part of what I learned from psychoanalysis. I I free associate uh, Mm -hmm. as I'm engaging with people. And so as they're telling me about their troubles, I'm remembering mine. I'm remembering my experiences, my trauma, my failures, my hangups, my problems in trying to change, my suffering around these things. And I have them, they're there, you know, yeah. and, and, it's, and it's automatically there. And what it does is it opens me up to, to feel with them. So when they talk about their pain and their hurt and their insecurities, I'm right with you, buddy. You know, I yeah. don't tell them, but I'm, <laughs> uh, 
but I'm, I'm with you. And there, then I can begin to intuit you. I can begin yeah. to get a sense of what you're going through and not just depend on the, your words to understand what you're going through. You know, and then when I when I do an enactment, which came from Sal, and people can bring their and live their issues right there in the room with me, okay, it, it's for real. And they're doing their thing, and, and I'm feeling it, and I can enter it, and I can engage them in it, and be with them fully myself, okay, in the sense that it just opens me up to resonate, to identify with, to associate to the things that, that I'm experiencing. So that they, that's why my, my saying about therapy, that therapy is not a conversation, it's an experience. Yeah. It's going to make an impact in people's lives. But that has to be disciplined. And yeah. Okay? Especially if you're getting into th things that are truly sensitive to you, that are truly hurtful, traumatized, a part of you, you need to be on top of it. You know, otherwise it can overwhelm you in there and paralyze you, it can freeze you in, in the session. You can act out on it in ways that are destructive to yourself and to your client. So then I developed a, a program that says, let's spend this, the, the, we had three quarters. So let's spend this first quarter with you taking turns and uh, writing up so that I can read it and my co-leader can read it. You know, tell me about who you are. Tell me about what your core issues are, personal issues are. Tell me how you think this is going to affect your clinical work as you begin to get cases. And this is first-year people. Yeah. And you're going to do this in the presence of your cohort. Yeah, that uh, sounds overwhelming. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, you know, it's like the first person who's going to do this is like saying, tomorrow, all right, strip, take your clothes off, you know. <laughs> <laughs> in, front of, in front of your cohort. But I also know, you know, how sensitive it is. I know how secretive I am about my own stuff. And so I'm very sensitive to be protective of them and uh, mm -hmm. to be very clear with them. Listen, if there's something that you don't want to talk about, you don't, you don't want to put out there, keep it to yourself. I understand that. That's not a problem. But I want you to be conscious of it. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about it. When you talk about it, I'm going to be there. Yes, I'm going to explore with you. I'm going to try to help you to conceptualize it. I'm going to try to help you to put words to it. I'm going to help you to, to be able to converse with yourself about it so that it begins to make sense. I want you to get desensitized to the emotions that overwhelm you when you connect with all of these experiences, with all of these associations, so that then you can actually use it and work with yeah. it. Yeah. It, this is, has to be instrumental for you, okay? So th this, is, this is a training. This isn't just reading about something and saying, oh, yeah. that's a nice idea, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you, know you mean, you mean my, my whole grad school experience of, oh, this sounds like a good idea. That, that wasn't effective. <laughs> that wasn't effective, right. Uh, so, I, you know, I say to them, you know, I, and I, I say, to them, you know, you, you don't train a football player by showing them videos about great football games. You know, you have to get out there and do it uh, mm -hmm. and get bruised in doing it. And, and it, so that it becomes something that's automatic to you, yeah. you know, something that just naturally comes up for you. And you're able to say, oh, this will help me in, in relating to my client. This will help me in and resonating with my client and in, in, in being uh, sensitive to what they're, what they're going through. 
this is going to help me to really make an assessment. Yeah. You know, I can get a real idea as to what they're really going through. I can get an idea as to really why it's so difficult for them to change because I'm getting deeper into their experience. They're not just telling me that they're depressed and they're, they're staying in bed. I'm understanding why and I'm getting a feel for why they're yeah. depressed and in bed. Okay, and what makes it so hard for them to get out of bed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I conduct this session with them in the presence of, of the cohort, and they, they talk about it. They would joke about it, a lot of them. They say, okay, oh, yeah, this is the crying session with Harry. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so we have to have a lot of, you know, tissues there. Um, and I understand that because I cry myself, you know, and around this stuff. And so they would talk about it. I want them to conceptualize it. In the second quarter, I'm saying, now I want, I want to show you how to take this and have you give life to the work that you're doing clinically, technically. Yeah. Okay, well, you, you have to go to school. You have to learn the various schools of therapy. You have to learn the techniques. You have to learn about psychopathology. All this stuff is absolutely essential. But this stuff, these are tools. Okay, these are tools that you will make use of through your human relationship and connection that you're having with your clients. So I want you yeah. to be able to give life to that, life that really connects with your clients and makes an impact on them. You'll have a sense of where they really are, what they're going through, how they're relating to you, how much they trust you. You'll have a sense of timing. Okay, now I can say it. Now I can do it. You have a sense of this is how I should do it. This is mm -hmm. the kind of personality I have. I'm a man. I'm a woman. I'm six feet tall. I'm five feet two. You know, I have this mm -hmm. personality. I have that personality. I have to do it in a way that makes sense to who I am and who that person or that family or that couple is. Okay. I want you to have that kind of experience. In other words, I'm trying to train you to master yourself within the context of being in the role of being a therapist, okay? And so we're gonna do role plays and mm -hmm. you're gonna bring in videos of your work so that I can see it, but I'm more interested in the role play. When you do the role play, we're gonna have people from, from your class are gonna role play couples and families, okay? And they're, the, they're your clients and they're gonna have the experience of you trying to relate to them. And you'll have a sense of what it's like to have somebody trying to connect with you, you know. And I want to sit right behind you. And every few minutes, I want to stop and say, okay, what's happening with you now? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? Why are you only talking to this person? You're not talking to that person, you know. Oh, well, because, well, you know, like I've had experience in class a number of times. You know, I have a, a, an African-American client and then married to a, a white woman as a guy. And the therapist is only relating to the African-American. And I say, why are you doing that? Why are you ignoring her? Well, mm. she's privileged. You know, she doesn't <laughs> suffer the way the black person does. Oh, really? So she doesn't suffer. huh? Uh, you don't suffer? You know, and so we mm. go through that and say, oh, is that what we're talking about? So, so we're talking about a transformation. We're yeah. talking about something's revolutionary. Okay, we're talking about creating something and training a person to say I who I am is really important and at the very heart of the work that I'm doing 
and I have to be an instrument that can, knows how to use these tools that I'm being trained to use. And so by the, by the third quarter, we have paid actors who then I supervise with the, 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 the students, working with them, and I work with them in the same way, making them aware of themselves, making them uh, have conscious use of themselves so that they could make all of this technical training that they're getting and learning, they could make it useful and effective. I just love that program because to me, it, it feels like such a relief to think about being myself in the room is not only allowed, it's important. And being able to do what we do naturally, which is free associate and try to connect with the person across from us and understand their experience through our own experiences instead of trying to, you know, put those away, put those away. This is about the client. This is about the client. Like that to me feels so important and so validating that I can be a person in the room. And, and I, in fact, I should be. And it's the only way that I can really do this work effectively. I feel like we could talk with you for hours and hours and hours, but we are so low on time. <laughs> I'm so glad that we get to have our, the, to continue this I was going to say conversation, but I'll call it experience to continue this experience together in September. Thank you so much for being here. I'm very happy to be here and have a chance to put it out there so that somebody can hear it and somebody takes it seriously as you're doing. Yeah. 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 There's a number of things that Harry has mentioned during this episode. We will put links to those in our show notes. You can find those at mtsgpodcast.com. And like I said, we have Harry slated to be one of our keynote speakers at the Therapy Reimagined 2020 conference. Just like everywhere else in the world right now, we are watching the whole health situation. We are constantly making tweaks to how our event is going to be presented and exploring all of our options. And for the most up-to-date news on that, check out our website and we would love to have you join us and join Harry. And until next time, I'm Kurt Woodhelm with Katie Vernoy and Dr. Harry Aponte. Thank you for listening to the Modern Therapist Survival Guide. Learn more about who we are and what we do at mtsgpodcast.com. You can also join us on Facebook and Twitter. And please don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of our episodes. Remember to check out Thryzer. They are passionate about making out-of-network therapy work for everyone. Clients save upfront on therapy while therapists earn their full rate. Get started in minutes on join.thryzer.com forward slash modern therapist and use the promo code modern therapists and receive $2,500 in waived fees for your sessions. Thanks so much to our partner, Therapy Notes, the highest rated practice management solution for behavioral health. Don't forget, using promo code MODERN gets you two free months.